turn with me to Colossians. We are uh, picking up where we left off last week as half the church leaves as their children go. Um, we, we finished chapter one, so we are now in chapter two. If you could move the slide to the scripture reading, that would be great, Mr. Mike. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is our scripture lesson. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let me read to you our scripture lessons from the inspired, inherent, authoritative word of God. Colossians 2, 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for all of those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, Christ, are all hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The Apostle Paul, while in Rome under house arrest, received a visitor. His name is Epaphras. Epaphras was a man who was with Paul a few years earlier in Asia Minor in a city called Ephesus. And he met Paul there and was discipled by Paul. And then after that, he went to his city, Colossae, where he lived, and either planted the church there, thank you, my brother, either planted the church there in Colossae or was at least one of the lead pastors and leaders of the church. But several years have passed and false teachers and False teaching had infiltrated the church, and that sent Epaphras to Paul, who was in Rome. He told him that there was those who were teaching that Christ was not sufficient to save. He was not supreme over all creation. He's not God in the flesh, worthy of worship. That they started well with the gospel they heard from Epaphras, but they needed more, like legalism and ritualism, asceticism. They needed to add to the person the work of Jesus in order to grow in their faith, to deepen their faith, in order to, to know and to really experience God. Paul hears of this news from Epaphras and writes this letter to the church. And begins the letter we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, as an apostle. He's talking about authority. Was sent by Jesus by the will of the Father. He then gives thanks for the church that, they, that he knows of their faith and their love and the hope that they have in the gospel. The grace of God, the truth of the gospel is bearing fruit. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he thanks them. He, 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 excuse me, he, he asks God to fill them with the knowledge of his will so they can walk. We'll see that word today. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him and bearing fruit in every good work. Then he says, but let's give thanks to God the Father. Verse 13, one of the you know, real important verse of this book. That the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption that's Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. And then in chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, 
Paul, in this, in this brilliant, spirit-led revelation, reveals the reality, the truth of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. That there is no one and nothing outside of Christ that you need to know in order to know God, to experience God, to walk with God, to, to have a deep relationship with God. For us, Jesus is Lord of creation. We saw that. He's Lord of the new creation. All things are made by him, for him, and through him. He holds all things together. In fact, chapter 1, verse 19 says that Christ is, in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, he reconciled all of creation and sinners, you and I, to himself through the blood of the cross. Everything in all of creation, the entire universe has its origin, its consummation, and its hope in Christ's work of reconciliation. Amazing reality. And last week we saw Paul walk, uh, moved into the work of the ministry. If you look with me in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says that he rejoices in his suffering for their sake. Church of Colossae. But then the rest of uh, the 25 through the end of the chapter, he kind of shifts and he's talking more broadly about his ministry, not so much to Colossae, but to the church in general, to the body of Christ, universal. His work to the church's in the area and the churches in which he planted and the church itself. And how he suffered incredibly for the sake of the church. As a minister, a good steward of God, we saw that last week. He was given the task to make fully known the mystery, verse, one, uh, verse 27, chapter 1. To know the mystery to them, to all the saints he's talking about. God chose to make known through the apostle how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is incredible. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That, you know, Paul's rejoicing in the suffering that he's gone through, the toils, as he participates in the missio day, the mission of God, seeking and saving the lost, as he's declaring the good news of the gospel to Gentiles and to, and to Jews alike, that the plan of salvation is for all people united in Jesus. And that gives the Gentiles hope to share in the glory of Christ at the consummation of the ages. And then we ended last week, if you look with me in chapter uh, 1, verse 28 and 29. Paul says, Him we proclaim as Jesus, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, he says in verse 29, I toil, toiling among the churches, I'm struggling among the churches, with his energy, all his energy, that's God's energy, that God, he powerfully works within me. Paul is sharing his heart. Paul is sharing his purposes. His purpose of, of declaring the gospel, his love. And not only is he concerned about seeing people come to faith as he's planting churches, but here he toils and struggles with the power that, gives him, that God gives him so that he can bring believers to maturity, growing and learning and maturing. We call it the sanctifying process in Christ. Remember, the false teachers of that day and in that church were infiltrating that church, trying to prevent people to grow deeply in Christ. They were preventing people. They were trying to bump them off the mission, bump them off the path of truth, of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, who is the gospel. So Paul said, this is my ministry to the churches. And now as we get into chapter 2, he goes from the general ministry to the church to the ministry he has to the particular church of Colossae. He makes his love and his devotion to the church known. 
And he tells them three things. I think we'll see three headings today. How they ought to grow in Christ. How they ought to stand firm in Christ. And how they ought to walk in Christ. Growing, standing, and walking in Christ. That's where we'll go. So look with me in verse 1 of chapter 2. Remember, the numbers here, chapter 2, were put in later. It was just a letter written by Paul. I toil, verse 29, all the energy that power works with me. I want you to know how great a struggle I have. You can see the connection I have for you and, and for those at the Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul mentions Laodicea in chapter 4, verse 3. He'll mention Hierapolis. If you remember from the introduction, they were three cities, sister cities near each other, located in the Lycus Valley in Asia Minor. And, and he knows that the church of Colossae is facing these false teachers, and he knows, I'm sure, that the sister churches are going to be affected by these false teachers, and he's concerned about the surrounding churches, about the false doctrine that he is uh, combating and that's going on in the church. Now, what's, what's interesting is Paul did not plant these churches. Paul's never seen them, was never there face-to-face, -face, he says. But Paul cared about the church. He cared about the teaching that was going on in the church, even though he did not start the church. And he used the same verb in verse 29, and verse 29 as he does here in chapter 2, verse 1, struggling, that he is struggling, uh, hard work and labor. Actually, it's the verb agonizo, which we get our word agonizing. Paul says it's like an athlete who is, who is agonizing, and he's straining and striving toward winning the prize, right? Crossing the finish line. Paul is saying that he's in anguish, he's in pain, he's, he's struggling and toiling, and he's enduring all this for them, for a people he never met, a church he never planted. Pastor Paul cared about other churches. Why? What, let me ask this question. What makes a good pastor? What makes a good minister of the Lord? Now, if I were to ask you that question, you could talk about it in, in community group. What gifts you would need? What, what attributes do you, do, would you need to shepherd well? Some may say preaching, leadership, vision, Bible knowledge, experience, schooling, and the list goes on and on and on. All those things are good things, important things. They're helpful things. But let me tell you what kind of foundation that's necessary for all those things to be placed on, built on, in order for them to really function well. Love. Love. The Apostle Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians 13. You know the passage. Smack in between two big chapters of, of, of spiritual gifts. <laughs> he says to the church and he exhorts the church, love must be the foundation. Love must be the foundation. Even if you were to sacrifice your body, give your body to be burned, if you have not love, what? You gain nothing. Paul loved the church. He loved the church that he planted. He loved the churches that he had nothing to do with. Why? Because Jesus Christ gave himself in love to redeem the church. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. All over the New Testament, as Paul's writing to these churches, Paul speaks of love for the church. Do you love the church? Not the building. 
Technically, really, we don't go to church. We gather as the church. I know that seems like simple, but it's a good reminder. We gather as the church. Do you love the church? Jesus loves the church. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul speaks of, of himself and the, the entourage that he's with, and, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he talks about them being fools and weak and hungry and thirsty. Chapter 4, verse 12, we labor with our own hands. We're reviled, we bless. Uh, uh, when, when we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we entreat. We become, he says, scum of the world. He says, I'm writing these things not to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Well, Paul, you love the church. You're a minister. You're supposed to love the church. That's for you guys. Verse 2. Great struggle I have for you. Not see me face to face. That their hearts, that's the community, may be encouraged being knit together in love. Paul hopes that in his struggling to present everyone mature in Christ, first is that their hearts may be encouraged. When you hear the word heart in the New Testament, in the Old Testament as well, it includes the will, the intellect, the emotion. It's the very center of a person. The word encouragement, parakaleho, it's used in John 16, a paraclete, if you've heard that term used before, of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will, I will ask of the Father, he will give you another helper. It's a word that means to come alongside and, and to speak truth, to encourage, to strengthen someone. And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I want you to be strengthened. I want what I'm doing in the toiling and, and what I'm going through in the hardship to come alongside and be a great comfort and strength to you. I want this strength to be in the very inner core of your being. And as you see my love, as you see me toiling, as you see me struggling for the church, I want this to not only, be a, a, not only result in an encouragement to you, but it brings unity of love for one another. Knit together in love. Love of God. We know that God is love. John 4. 1 John 4. Therefore, when believers knitted, welded together in love, are confronted with, with, the, with heresy, with false teaching... Lies and, and untruths, let them in love come together to pray, to discuss, to, to work through with each other as they look at the word of God. Let their hearts be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. F.F. Bruce really gets to the heart of the passage. He says this. Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God, the unveiling of God, cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within community, within Christian community, end quote. What Paul is saying is really incredible. Simple intellectual comprehension of the mystery of Christ will not help you to grow to the full understanding understanding of the mystery, it must come through, he says, love for one another. Think about it this way. If God is love, 1 John 4, and he is, and Christ is God in the flesh, he's the embodiment of love, and the full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God is in Christ, 
then when we genuinely love one another, what do we experience? We experience Christ through one another. And what happens? Our knowledge of Christ is increased. Love becomes the vehicle of understanding and knowing the full assurance, the knowledge of God. We grow in Christ. Kent Hughes, no intellectual process will lead to a full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless it is accompanied by a love for him and for Christians that knits together the church together come in love. Okay? No intellectual process will lead to a full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless is it accompanied by a love for him and for Christians that knits us, the church, together in love. We cannot pursue knowledge of God in willful, unloving isolation. We cannot pursue knowledge of God in willful, willful, unloving isolation, rejecting fellowship with others. Complete understanding of the mystery comes in loving community, end quote. That's exactly what Paul is saying. So as we read God's word, as we study God's word, as we gather together on Sunday morning, as we gather together in community groups, we do so by loving God with all our hearts, and we do so loving with all our hearts the church, the body of Christ, the people of God. Then we will know what we ought to know. Love the mark of a believer. Jesus made it clear. They'll know that you've been with me because why? You love one another. And love's just not a feeling. Love's an action. Join together. It's a deliberate, perpetual desire and a pursuit of the loved one's well-being for the benefit of a loved one, for their good. That's why sometimes love is tough. So when love is genuine, ongoing, it enables us to grow with a deeper knowledge of Christ, which in turn results in wisdom and knowledge, verse 3. In whom, that's Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Since Christ is God, who dwelt among us, all wisdom originates in him. The false teachers were, were, were listen, they were focused on new revelation, new knowledge. You got to do this, you got to do that. Paul says, no, focus on Christ, focus on the gospel. God in Christ is all the treasure we need. He's the storehouse of real knowledge, the wisdom. There's no need to look anywhere else. The Colossians, we ourselves must not look for our source of joy, our, our, our growth in God outside of Christ. Our salvation, our human flourishing is in the gospel. In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Hidden not in the sense where you can't know. Hidden in the sense where we can discover them when we are in Christ, in his word, understanding better the gospel. In other words, listen, the infinite value of the gospel can only be understood through the inexhaustible glory that is communicated, experienced in union with Jesus in the gospel. So here's the takeaway. Paul loves the church. Paul loves the church, the people of God, because he loves Christ. And Christ, who in love willingly died as an atoning sacrifice to redeem the church, to purchase the church. He loves the church. And Paul, like Jesus, was willing to give his life for the church. Now, not in an atoning way, he didn't die as an atoning sacrifice for the church, but certainly Paul was loving the church, willing to lay down his life in a sense for the church, for the growth of the church, sacrificing for the church, to fulfill his ministry to the church. He's an example of Christ 
as Christ loves the church. The mystery of the gospel unfolds as we're being filled with the knowledge in love, through love, I should say. And that's a question that we have to really think through. When I say, do you love the church? Again, we're not talking about the building. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the gathering of the saints weekly, daily, meeting in homes, breaking bread, meeting together in large. Jesus gave his life for the church. That's how we grow in Christ. Look what it says about standing in Christ now. Now we're getting to the real heart. Next week and the next two weeks, actually, we're getting to the deep, uh, uh, what, what the false teachers were teaching. But we get some of that today, right? So this is the crutch of the issue, the false teachers. And, and the purpose of Paul now really comes to fruition as he's revealing uh, why it's important to understand the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Verse 4, I'm saying this in order that no one delude you from, with, excuse me, delude you with plausible arguments. Paul's pressing in. Listen, stay focused on Christ. Stay committed to Christ for your, for your salvation, for human flourishing. Don't be distracted by false teachers. Don't get your eyes off of the focus and away uh, focus on Christ, the sole focus on Christ. Look to him. And kind of he, he kind of moves here, if you notice with me, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, more of a, of a positive aspect of, of that encouragement. And now he's moving more to the negative, kind of, here, here's the warning, I'm telling you, uh, uh, to be careful. I'm writing this, that no one may delude you. Middle voice, in other words, it's, it's an act by which you're being deceived, yourself being deceived through false reasoning. Plausible arguments, interesting word, means convincing speech, something that is attractive, your NIV, if you have an NIV, it says this. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. CEV, uh, contemporary English version, says this. I tell you these things to keep you from being fooled by fancy talk. I think it's interesting that Paul, as he's starting to get into what's really going on with the, with the false teaching, is now saying be careful of the logical reasoning behind some of these arguments, the, the, uh, how, how some of them may sound right, but they're against Christ, they're against the gospel. And in the end, family, we don't, we don't stand our ground on logical arguments, fair arguments, right? We stand on the word of God. Not logical reasoning, but the word of God. Okay, I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Let me, just, let me just share a personal testimony with you. As I, be, as I was studying at that time, I was, didn't realize I was going to be in the ministry. I think I shared that last week. But when I was studying and, and starting to think of the systematic theology, starting to think of, of the deeper things about God, salvation, sovereignty of those things like that, um, there's a lot of logical, what you would call somewhat logical arguments against the sovereignty of God, the sole work of Christ and redemption, our complete inability in and of ourselves Apart from the enabling grace of God, to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Lots of arguments. And I read everything I could possibly get on. We call it Reformed Theology. And I was reading everything I got my hands on. At the end of the day, for me, I had to make a decision. Either I was going to follow the logical arguments that people were saying against those things, or I was just going to stand upon God's word. 
Stand upon God's word. And, I, and, and, and listen, I praise God that he enabled me to see that the word of God is infallible, not an I. That what I say and what others were saying was not inspired. It may be helpful, but not inspired. They don't have the authority that scripture has. I'm not saying that scripture is not logical. I'm not even saying that scripture is not historical. They are both those things. What I am saying, though, even though we should think deeply, I am saying that our experience, now listen, our experience, our human reasoning does not substitute or have authority over God's word. To grow in the knowledge of Christ through the word of God is needed to avoid the deceitful traps of foolish arguments, logical arguments. Many heretics have this logical argument. They, they draw these logical conclusions. You think, oh, well, no, actually, they're not true. I was thinking of two of them as I was studying this week. One was known as open theism. Maybe it's not as popular today. And the other one is this hyper-grace movement. They hate when I use that term, hyper-grace. That's why I use it all the time as I can. <laughs> open theism means God has limits. God doesn't know everything. He's caught off guard. He's not sure how things are going to work out. He knows every possibility, but he's not really sure because the future is open. A guy by the name of Gregory Boyd from St. Uh, uh, Paul, Minnesota taught that, and a lot of people joined on. Well, I'm like, well, then why trust Christ for anything if you're not sure? All right? Wasting our time for forgiveness, eternal life, the, re the resurrection from the dead. Like, how can you be sure? The Bible says God is sovereign, clearly. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it's purposes of the Lord that will stand. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign. Just because we can't figure it out with some logical reasoning doesn't mean he's not sovereign anymore. It means you're not. He is. Right? And then we have this logical argument from a guy, Joseph Prince, Singapore, Andrew Farley, Texas, hyper grace and their arguments. Unfortunately, they string together plausible, somewhat logical reasoning, and they lead you right down the path to false teaching. And the message is that God forgives you all your sins. You're his child. He's forgiven past president, and he's made you righteous in the blood of Jesus. So why should you repent or even ask for forgiveness? The false teacher of this hyper-grace movement emphasized the grace of God. And they're like, well, how can you go wrong with emphasizing God's grace? Could you ever do that? Like, yeah. Actually, Romans 6, Paul addresses it. Should I sin that grace may abound? Like, you're taking this grace thing a little bit too far. When the grace of God is emphasized that sin no longer is important, holiness, the fear of the Lord, confession and repentance is ignored, you've taken it too far. And their argument is, is God's grace enough? Well, yeah. But they don't teach the whole Bible. The scripture's clear. Positionally, we have been forgiven. But God has given us all those things, a deep sense of sin when the Holy Spirit brings that Grieving, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, it gives us a sense of sin. The, the gift of, of the ability and the freeing practice of confession and repentance of sin, that's God's gift to us to mature in Christ as we seek to grow in our relationship here on earth with the living God who are sinful people trying to grow in holiness. Yes, someday we will be completely holy, yes. Five out of the seven churches in Revelation were called to repent. Mic drop on their false teaching. And my point in all this is to encourage you to stand firm on the word of God. Be careful not to read things 
and to think, well, that's a logical conclusion. Again, I'm not saying Scripture's not logical or historical. I'm saying that your experience, my experience, and human reasoning does not substitute or contradict or have authority over God's Word. We're going to see all that in the next few weeks. And if you're uncomfortable with me calling out some false teachers, I'm sorry. I'm doing it anyway. Paul continues, verse 5. I'm not going to stand before Jesus someday and shepherding the church and not point out some of the nonsense that's going out there. I'm not the kind of guy to point out every little tiny thing someone says. That's not me. But there's some blaring and glaring false teaching going on out there, and I need to tell you. Verse 5. Though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Can't be with you. I can't be with you, but spiritually there's a unity. There's, there's a union. You're not even my spiritual children, but in some ways we are joined together spiritually. Loving others, caring for others, loving the church, whether it's pastoral or it's not, is rightly concerned about the truth, the gospel truth. False teaching by just by its very nature is cruel, and, and falsehoods about Christ decay and, and devastate and corrupt our love. It'll rob us of the joy we have in Christ. Paul is committed to these believers, even though he's never been there. And, 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 and he knows that even though he's not there, it's not going to undermine their bond together in Christ. Because all united, we're all part of the worldwide church, right? But there's more here, I think. I, I don't think Paul just means he is spiritually with them. I, I, think, I think that something can be said... And, we could talk about this in community group, that as they are reading this letter, as God's word is being unveiled to them in the community, they are standing united together. That he's with them as the word is being read, as the authority of who he is and his apostolic writings are being read together. And it's his hope and confidence as they read this letter, they're standing firm in Christ with him as they receive the letter, receive the warning, so that they would what? Look what it says. Rejoice that he would rejoice in their good order and in the firmness of your faith. Good order could be translated good discipline. It has orderly, doctrinal orderly. The word firmness uh, is what they call hapax legomena. It's the only place in the New Testament where that word is used. It's a military term. He's saying that the camp is in order. The defenses are lined up. You began well, you're standing firm, you're stable, you're steadfast on a foundation that is secure because they're in truth, their faith in Christ. The point is, Paul is saying, look, you, you started well, everything's in order, but my concern is that you'll go out of order. My concern is that you'll be sidetracked. So I want you to remain steadfast. I want you to remain firm uh, and standing firm on the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. It reminds me of Jesus in chapter 7, right? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man built a house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat the house. It didn't fall. Why? Found it on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them, ignores them, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Wake up. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and what happened to the house? Great was his fall. I love the song we sing, Pastor Ricky leads us, the solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less. He's thinking right now, why didn't he tell me this earlier? We could have done it today. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's my foundation. When darkness veils his lovely face, when I don't see what's going on, I'm going to rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor's holds within the veil. The end of the veil meaning the opening of Christ, the presence of Christ. On Christ's solid rock I'll stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Growing, standing, and now walking. Verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This, this, look, mark in your Bibles, verses 6 and 7, it is the centerpiece of the whole book. Paul says, therefore, all those things are true. Because they are true, walk in him. Walk in Christ, the one we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Walk in Christ, the one in whom is the image of the invisible God. Walk in the one who has created all things. Walk in the one who holds all things together. Walk in the one who is the head of the church, firstborn from the dead, the one who is preeminent. Walk in the one whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Walk in the one who has reconciled to himself all things. Walk in the one who reconciled sinners in his body of flesh by his death in order to, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Walk in the one who all the mystery for all the people will be revealed who is Christ Jesus in you, the hope of glory. Walk in the one in whom all the hidden treasures and wisdom and knowledge of God keep walking in that one. Don't falter. Don't falter. Well, how do we do that? First, we must be received. He must be received. Verse 6, therefore you have received him. Two, two simple verbs. Very interesting. To appropriate something and then as a parable or paracletos parable to come alongside. What Paul is saying is he, to personally appropriate to oneself to receive instruction. And Paul is saying you've received the proper instructions with the gospel with the Epaphras. You appropriated the important doctrines of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Since you received it, walk in him. Notice what it says. It doesn't say, therefore, you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. It says that in confession in, in Romans 10.9. What it's saying here is, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. Okay, the Lord. He is speaking of the, the tradition, the body of truth that was given to them about the lordship of Christ, his deity. You receive that, stay with that, stand on that. Walk in that. Paul used the same word, that, that word of, of reception of body of truth in 1 Corinthians 15. As he talks about the reception and transmission of the gospel. He says, I want, you to remind, I want to remind you brothers of the gospel which I preached to you, which I received. Jesus knocked him down. Jesus revealed himself to him. He says, I delivered to you of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. What I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. What Paul is talking primarily here is not receiving Jesus as Lord, personal Lord, but a reception of receiving Jesus the Lord. The truth the authentic truth of the gospel. He is Lord of all. You received him. Arist 
indicative verb. In other words, you've received them, you have already received them in the past, and, and now you're, you're, you're rooted in him, now walk in him. He's Lord of all. And the emphasis, I think, again, Paul is just saying, be careful of the nonsense that's being taught about the supremacy and sufficiency and deity of Christ. He's reminding them. They can only be found in, the, in walking with and knowing the exhaustible riches of Christ. Family, think about this for a minute, just for a minute. Do you, if you're a child of God, you've been bought with the blood of Jesus here, do you wake up every morning thinking, I don't, I am now. I'm walking with God today. I'm walking with God today. I'm not walking alone. I'm not walking without his strength. I'm not walking without his presence. He's living in me by the Holy Spirit. I'm walking with God today. That's something to think about. I'm walking with God. (laughs) What does it mean to walk with God? recognizing, remembering, relishing in the gospel, thinking through the gospel, thinking of him often. It requires stamina. It requires strength, direction, destination. Lord, what would you have me today? I'm walking with you. Where are we going? Like I said last week, you know, you can start on a journey in one place and end up somewhere very different. We've got to avoid pitfalls and hindrances, which is daily walking with Jesus, man. It's great. Verse 9, he says, you want to, you know, remember in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, that all the knowledge of his will and spiritual understanding, he prays for that. And he says, as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. So uh, Paul says earlier, I want you to walk with God, walk pleasing God, walk in a way that honors God, understands the gospel, is living your life and faith out. Now he's saying, walk with him. And he gives us four clear participles modifying and describing what it looks like. We'll just hit them quickly. Number one, rooted. Number two, being built up. Three, established, abounding in love. That's what it looks like to walk with him. So number one is rooted. Comes from agriculture. It literally, it's a perfect uh, tense in the Greek. Perfect means they have been rooted in the past with, with, with present results. You're firmly anchored. You've already been rooted in him. Now walk in him. Like a tree, you know, deeply rooted in the ground with strong roots, drinking of its nourishment. We are to be rooted deeply in the soil of biblical truth, of what the scriptures teach. Christ, the source of life, as nourishment as we grow and bear fruit. Reminds, reminds me of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one man who walks in, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers, but he delights, what? In the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates it day and night, the word of God. How, what is he like? Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's the man rooted in Christ. The healthy tree, growing branches, root. Tree, shade, beauty, rooted in Christ. And build up. Another, another metaphor, a building, a building metaphor. This one's in the present, participle in the Greek, which means it's ongoing. As you're continually being built up. Almost every commentator says Paul's talking about the body of Christ, the temple of Christ. As we are being built up in him, the new covenant temple of God, Ephesians 2. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and, and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone, the whole structure being joined together, growing into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, Christ, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Rooted in Christ, growing in Christ, growing together, being built up. He says, establish in the faith, just as you were taught. He's describing the result of being rooted and growing. Grounded and growing, we're being established, strengthened in the faith. Again, it says in the faith. Okay? Not in your personal faith, but in that body of truth. In the word of God, in the gospel. Constantly being established. That's the, that's the participle there. He's, he's constantly growing and being established and growing stronger. And what's going to happen here, and Paul is saying, is if you're rooted in drinking in Christ... You're being built up together in the body as brothers and sisters into Christ. You're going to be established, strengthened in that doctrine, in that truth of the, of the faith. And then what happens? Look what it says. Abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I don't usually do this, but this is really important, and we're, we're going to close in a minute. Give me two more minutes here. Abounding in thanksgiving is the only participle in that four, in those four, that is in the active voice. Okay, let me explain that. The others are in the passive voice. In other words, God, not the Colossians, are doing the rooting, doing the building, establishing the faith. The passive voice, the subject is being acted upon. So in other words, God is doing that for them. Growing, excuse me, being rooted, built up, and established. Abounding in thanksgiving is the active voice. Which means that's their response to what God is doing. The subject is performing the action. Does that make sense? That abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. It's constant throughout this letter. It's this over, this boiling over of gratitude for all that God has done. Should for us and for them... Show us and reveal to us there's no need or desire to look for fulfillment anywhere else. They cannot be taken in by false promises or shaken by false hope. For gratitude and thanksgiving for what God is doing. How he is having us rooted. He is establishing us in the faith. He is building us up. Gratitude, thanksgiving would be the hallmark of that genuine faith. And you may ask why? Because the heart of the gospel is the grace of God, not merit, nothing we have done. And the wonder of Jesus that everything he does for us and gives to us is an outpouring of love and grace toward us. How should we respond? With gratitude and thanksgiving. The nourishing roots in Christ, the building up into Christ, the deliverance of the truth about Christ will be evidenced when our attitude is filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for both our salvation and our sustaining of life. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, the band can come on up. A thankless attitude, now listen to me, a thankless attitude reveals a life that is no longer focused on the supremacy and sufficiency and greatness of God. A thankless attitude reveals a life which is no longer focusing on the supremacy and the sufficiency and the greatness of Christ. Now, we've all been there, not judging anyone. 
we got to refocus. Thanksgiving, a visible response to the grace of God. And this communion table represents that. It helps us focus not on ourselves, but on Christ and the grace of God. Yes, it should teach us and to show us and to help us understand the depth of our sin, but also the beauty of God's grace, causing us to be overwhelmed with thanksgiving and gratitude. So let me ask, are we satisfied in Christ this morning? Are we genuinely loving one another? Are we seeking all the riches of the full understanding of Christ and the gospel through his word? Are we walking with Christ daily, rooted in him, being built up and strengthened in community, abounding in thanksgiving? Wherever the Holy Spirit is leading you as we sing and go to communion, I'm going to ask God to open up our hearts to show us what we need, how we need to repent, what sins we need to confess, and then we're going to celebrate with a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude as we take of the cup and the bread together. Band's going to play. We'll spend time repenting, confessing, and then we're going to celebrate together the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to ask everybody to come down these two rows and then come back up in the center. This is for believers. I hope you're here today and you love Jesus. You've confessed your sins, you repented, and you believed on him. If you have not, the communion table is for those who have. But we're glad you're here. We love you. We could genuinely say we love you. We love you so much, we will call you and love you and care for you and say, listen, Jesus loves you. Turn from your sin and enjoy forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Let us pray. So, Father, speak to our hearts by your Spirit. Show us ways in which we need to confess and repent. Help us to celebrate your grace that's sufficient, the cross that's sufficient, the blood that was shed on Calvary's hill that is all sufficient. Help us to celebrate the goodness of Jesus. Lord, as we continue together to grow in him, strengthen in him, and to walk with him each and every day. So if Holy Spirit come. Reveal to us the beauty of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.